Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry. Today we're going to talk with Sean Patrick Hazlitt. He is an author and an editor, and we're going to talk about his new book as well as when he won the Writers of the Future Award in 2017 and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, here's Sean. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Sherry? Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm really happy to have you on. Um, we're going to talk about books and the Writers of the Future Award, but first, why don't you tell the audience just a little snapshot vision of yourself? Sure. So I'm originally from Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I'm an Army veteran. I spent about five years in the Mojave Desert training U.S. forces for uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and then I am a writer and editor. I started writing... Uh, seriously back in 2011 uh, when I started submitting short stories uh, for the first time. And the first entry I ever sent was to the L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future uh, contest. And the the reason I did that is I really had no idea how good I was because I hadn't really been writing and submitting short stories in a very serious way until that point. Uh, And then, you know, kind of fast forward to 2017, I think I entered in to that contest every quarter uh, from from that point onward, and finally won you know won the contest. And there's 12 winners each year, where uh, I got to you know go down to, to Hollywood and and uh, appeared in an anthology. And the beauty of the contest is it's completely anonymous, um, and you know anybody can enter. And you just go to the website and uh, and enter that uh, contest. So um, in the course of doing that, I had. You know, I was published in other uh, publications, and I wanted to take a shot at, at being an editor. So I came up with this idea for my current book, Weird World War Three. I came up with a uh, you know, there, there's a lot of um, you, know, you, know, you know you know folks are kind of rem- reminiscent about the '80s and things like that with shows like Stranger Things and and all that stuff. And you know, both good ways and bad ways. The Cold War was a crazy time. But I wanted to, I asked the question, um, what if the United States had gone to war with the Soviet Union? And uh, and then from that premise, I wanted to add a speculative fictional element, which would be, you know, if there was, you know, take that and then add an element where there's some bit of fantasy, science fiction, or horror with that with that premise. And I came up with the idea for Weird, Weird World War III. I pitched the, my publisher, Bain, and they thought it would be a good fit. And you know the rest is history. So I got uh, I asked 21 different authors to submit 19 stories for the anthology, and all the stories are uh, I think fantastic, and they're and they all embody the theme, but they're all different in their own interesting creative ways. 
and I have you know a number of or there are a number of Nebula Award winning, Hugo Award winning, uh, Brand Stoker, Stoker Award winning um, you know authors in the in the anthology. So there's a good mix of uh, and depth of storytelling. So that's that's kind of me in a in a nutshell. During you know, during, during you know my day job, I'm a finance executive out in Silicon Valley and, and kind of do all that that good stuff. Um, but you know, writing is my real passion, and I, I, I enjoy the uh, you know the freedom to create, and uh, it's also incidentally the the therapy that pays for itself. So <laughs> that's that's me in a nutshell. That's true. Writing is a great therapy. And, and I, yeah, and I think you know just it allows you to work out problems. It allows you to um, you know to create. And I think I if I don't write for a long period of time, I get grumpy. Because you know, it just helps to get you know to get that out, and then just also just creating something that that is unique to you that wouldn't have existed if you didn't write it, uh, and 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 that you share uh, you know you share your vision with with the world. Um, I, I think you know there's a book that Stephen King wrote. I think it's called On Writing or Writing, something like that. Uh, he you know he writes writing is telepathy. You're you're inserting your own thoughts into somebody else's. Um, you know, psyche, and that's you know, it's it's you know, the most effective way that we can we can do that today. So it's something I really enjoy. Um, when did you first start writing? Did you write as a child? I did. So I I, I would say that when I was in fifth grade or you know eight or nine years old, I wrote a, a bunch of little short stories. I had to do it for an assignment um, in 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 grade school. So I wrote one, and I re- enjoyed the process so much. I think. I think I wrote, you know, God knows how many, maybe 10 to 15 little short stories that, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know any better. I just did it for fun. You know, they're not, and they're obviously not submittable at this point, but I still have them in a box uh, downstairs. Um, you know, at least, you know, I don't, I don't think the, the one I did for the assignment I have, but I think that, uh, you know, I have all the subsequent stories, just pages and pages. So, you know, I, I did that. I also just like writing um even even nonfiction. So I spent you know uh, several years as a equity analyst on on uh, Wall not not on Wall Street, but you know we published reports that were read by Wall Street. I was you know out in California the whole time. But uh, you know I liked merging the uh, you know writing about how companies were doing and writing about the industries and prognosticating on, on how you know those industries would evolve over time and, and who the, the winners and losers would be, and then also just backing up those viewpoints with, with hard data and, you know, you know, analyzing and things like that. So even even writing outside of fiction has been a big part of my life, um, you know, since you know, since graduate. Even when I was in the Army, right, I, um, I published a piece on... Uh, you know, you know how we trained U.S. forces uh, in in something called Armor Magazine. When I was at business school, I wrote a case study on uh, you know on strategic agility and how the the Army adapted to you know training to face a big peer competitor like the Russians to um, adapting to fighting insurgencies and counterinsurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you know, it, it's certainly been a big part of my life. Um, you know, both inside and outside of fiction and nonfiction. Can I ask you a question? It has really nothing to do with anything, but it just popped into my head. Back in history, I love history, George Washington adapted the way he fought the British by 
copying the way the American Indians, the Native Americans, were fighting them, the revolutionaries. Is adaption like the same now? You take something from history or you take something from another culture, and is that how you adapt? Uh, that's that's part of it. Um, part of it is just through like a rapid turnaround cycle. So one of the one of the things that U.S. forces were dealing with um, early on in the Iraq War were, were these um, IEDs, and you know which are kind of, you know, what, you, you, what most you know folks would refer to as kind of roadside bombs. Um, uh, you know, so and and what was happening was every time they would get familiar with one, you know, sort of roadside bomb, the Iranians would design something new and then it would, you know, maim or kill more people. So what 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 we were doing at the National Training Center is as soon as, um, you know, new information or a new, one, new one of these IEDs was encountered, um, within 72 hours we would be training U.S. forces to be able to identify and handle it as it... Uh, you know, when they encountered it in the field. So that's, that's part of it, just like rapid iteration based on experience. Um, and, and, but the U.S. military has also done exactly what we talked about. That, that was one example. Um, the U.S. military also, you know, one example, your, your, your Washington example. Another example is, you know, how the U.S. came up with Airland Battle Doctrine back in the 80s to fight the Russians. Um, you know, what they effectively, you know, effectively did was take uh, you know, some of the German tactics that were used in World War II against the Russians um, and adapted it into kind of our own repertoire during that period. So it's a mixture of both. And then sometimes you just have to you know, develop things um, entirely from scratch. So if you look at the, you know, the Cold War, um, and when you have atomic weapons, we never had weapons that you know, could destroy cities um, until you know, 19, the mid-1940s. So once once the Russians or Soviets got the same capability, they would, you know it was a completely new and different way of thinking about the world with mutually you know, um, assured destruction. And if you if you recall the movie um, Beautiful Mind, where mm-hmm. they, they effectively invented an entire, or not necessarily invented, but improved upon and and enhanced an entire new. Um, you know, mathematics around, you know, game theory and how you look at decisions, uh, decision-making in the light of what your, your competitor does and then thinking through all the if-then-else, uh, you know, what the other side, you know, what the other side does. It was kind of really advanced and pushed um, in order to prevent us from, you know, destroying ourselves um, with, a, you know, with nuclear weapons. So, you know, there's a, there's a mix. There's kind of if you think about there's 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 a, there's there's, a, there's either an evolution or there's a revolution mm-hmm. in how you, uh, you know, develop you know, strategy, operations, and, and tactics. So you know the evolution is just what I said is just kind of as new things come in, adapting to those in real time and using an empirical analysis, and then a revolution is a complete rethinking and more intuitive approach to the world, and both are used to uh, you know train and. Uh, you know, develop strategy and tactics for not just the U.S. military, but all militaries throughout history. I think it's fascinating. I, I, another thing, well, this is my movie side, uh, George Patton, is this a George Patton? Uh, George C. Scott played Patton. 
So, is it was it George Patton? Yeah, yeah, he, he played. Uh, yeah. George no, but was it his name was George Patton's name was George, right? Yeah. Okay. He there's a line in it where he says, "I read the book, your book." It was um, the Desert Fox. He actually yeah, wrote a book about his military. He said, "You, ma you magnificent bee, I read your book." Uh huh. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it actually changed all the tactics for the American army because he had read the book and he he put it into his fighting against uh, the Nazis. I was like, I that's you know Patton was a real creep in some ways, but that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, I mean, his the the book is uh, it's called Infantry Attacks. Um, and it, it uh, so I've read the book too. We had to, I had to read it as an officer. Um, and you know, Rommel was one of the um, one of the few honorable German yeah. generals. In fact, I think he had to. He was given the choice to either uh, you know bite down on a, a, a cyanide uh, capsule or uh, I, I, I I can't remember. He was implemented. He was implicated in the plot to to, to kill, kill Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. In fact, he, they think he was one of the people who came up with the plot. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I read that. But he was, um, that I read that, in, but he was a good guy. <laughs> he was an honorable man. And there was a lot yeah. of people like that. A lot of people from the Luftwaffe couldn't stand what was happening to their country. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's you know, this is, this is the... The curse of history is, you know, sometimes like, what do you do if you're on the on the wrong side? How do you, you know, how do you uh, deal with that? How do you? And again, that's a lot, lots of great story fodder for the writers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's well, I saw uh, in the in movie. Fact, <laughs> in fact, those are the most interesting stories because you know, if you you get a person who's on the wrong side and they have to choose between, you know, bad and worse. You know, how do they struggle with that? How do they, and, and can they find a way to, you know, a third choice? Can they be, you know, innovative and creative enough to find a way out of it? And it's, you know, it's, it's great grist for, you know, story conflict and, and you know, idea generation. I actually was wrestling, I found um, General Lee from the Civil War fascinating, and I was doing a time travel story, and I was trying to figure out, because it took place during the South, the time, just before the Civil War. And I was trying to figure out a way to get Lee into but I couldn't. Because I was, like, uh, reading everything about the period. He was really, he was not political. He, and he was, and he, he, he didn't really, he, he worked for General Washington. He did not want to do this. He, he was totally against splitting the country. But he said he went with the South because it was his home. It was a terrible choice. Yeah, I mean, he was he was uh, I think number one in his class at West Point, mm -hmm. and he he was the he was actually the choice to lead the Union armies. Yeah, and um, and he you know, ultimately sided with Virginia, his his uh, you know his his home. The you know the the, the, the sad the sad part about that though is uh, you know as a result because he sided with Virginia and the Confederacy instead of his. You know, instead of the United States, uh, they took his home and made it into Arlington Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, which is kind of one of those interesting, uh, cruel fates of, uh, of of history. And he was actually not a bad guy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it, it was a, it was a, um, it was a heartbreaking war. Yeah. Right. So. Well, it's brother against brother. Anytime you have a civil war, it's a bad thing. <laughs> yep, and it was also, but it was also the genesis of what future war would look like, right? So when you had Sh- uh, Sherman's march to the sea, that was a uh, that was a preview of kind of what a World War One and World War Two would look like. It's very interesting, and like you said, because like I, I was trying really hard to put Lee in my book. I really wanted him, but they just I couldn't get him to fit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's it, hard. Well, because it was my book didn't have it. It was a time travel book. It had nothing to do with military, and uh, the people that were in it, it was peaceful period. They, these were uh, they they were not military people. There was no reason for him to be in it, even though I really wanted him in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were just doing the one period that wasn't the 1860s. Is that what it was? Yeah. 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 And yeah. It, it just, I was like, I really, really want And he, I don't even think there would have been a reason for him to be in it. I just really liked his character. <laughs> yeah. You read stuff like that, and you're just like, you get enamored. Not, I'm not, it's not... It, it's not like I'm enamored with the enemy or anything. It's more like I was enamored with his actual personality. He was a really yeah. good guy. <laughs> yeah, just so in general. And he, like I said, he worked. He was part of. He was a revolutionary hero. Uh, what do you mean by revolutionary hero? I uh, he, he uh, not well not revolution but uh, 1884 the the when the British came and attacked again. Uh well uh, the war of 1812. 1812. Yeah, I, I, I think I, he was I, part I of that. Would, I don't know. I don't know if he was. if he was he would have been extremely young. I know that most of these generals made their medal in the Mexican War. Which was kind of in the ni- in the 1840s. Um, that's when they, you know, became, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of, you know, they all fought together, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, Union generals and Southern, you know, and uh, Confederate generals. They all, you know, worked together, and they, that's how they knew each other so well. Um, but it was a heartbreaking war. I didn't realize. Okay, uh, maybe I'm mixing it up. Um, you know, age does that. <laughs> it, it's possible though. Like, he would, he would have had to, though. He would have had to be in his sixties, or you know, your fifties. Yeah, fifties, and then um, you know, you're talking forty, fifty years earlier. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, 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 like I said, I could have messed it up. Sorry. Really? Um, I just, it's been a while since I read about it. That book I wrote about 10 years ago. So, um, <laughs> But at that time, I was very interested. Um, yeah. Well, you get into, like, these things, you know? Like, um, I, I, I get into, like, the 1920s is a fascination for me. And you get into these modes that you just want to know everything and you want to set stuff in it and then you move on to the next mode, you know, I mean. <laughs> and I've yeah, moved on, I d- so I, I don't remember everything. <laughs> well, you learn everything about, you know, a particular period. And, and, and you learn, like, really obscure things, too, that are fascinating, right? But they're not enough just for, like, an individual book. 
Oh no, just it's just for color and stuff. So yeah, uh, it's just like um, I did put this in my book. There there was a attack on Wall Street in the 1920s, and that I put into the book because I thought that was a good foreshadowing for what would happen later. Um, um, but it, I did it very delicately, and this was before. When you said attack, you mean like violence? Yeah, they they try to blow up one of the main offices in Wall Street. Oh, really? They're still... It was, um... What do they call it? Um... Art, anarchy. It was an anarchy group. Oh, anarchists. Okay. And, because they were very popular then. Um, huh. in the 20s. And, um... It was a, a, a two people. Uh, one one was an Italian, and another one was who was an ex mobster who had became an anarchist. And they they actually said if you look at the front of some of the buildings on Wall Street, you can see where the um, the ordnance hit the building. It's still there. Oh wow! That's how that much they do a lot of damage. Um, they they didn't hurt as many people as they wanted, thank God, because um, they wanted to blow up the whole building. But it was better made than they thought it was. Um, but they they did hurt a lot of people on the street. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. And so that I did put in my book. That's <laughs> why so I remember it better. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating though. It it it, it, it um. You know, it makes you it makes you think, and it also makes you think that uh, you know, as 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 much as people think, you know, you know what what our country is currently going through is you know an aberration. It's really not. Everything right? like is. Things, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, these things these these things you know these things happen, right? So everything is um, a part of everything. That's why it's really important to learn history. Yep. Yeah, because it, it it might not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. It it just it's interesting. There's like this real interesting line. I I, I studied archaeology. I wanted to be an archaeologist. The parts of archaeology, even though I studied under a um, a Peruvian specialist and I did ethnography for my my professor, my passion was Egyptology and Mesopotamia. I knew pretty much I'd never get over there. So. <laughs> but I read everything I can, and I watch all the shows about it and everything. It just it, it still fascinates me. But the line of history and what happened, and that affects the entire world, is fascinating. Like, one of the reasons the pharaohs lost power was because of natural climate change. But this natural climate change came about because of an explosion from um, the one in Italy, the one that made Pompeii. Oh, Mount, Mount, Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius. Because it blew its top. But the one that really caused the worst climate change for the entire world was Sarah, which was the basis of the thinking of Atlantis and all that. Um, do you know 
that from the explosion and the ash in the air that went around the world from Thera, that there are trees here in California that still have, that are like um, oak and pine and the great forest trees that are in your part in Northern California. Um, uh, sequoias, giant sequoias, sequoias that have actually the ash from the Sarah explosion. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's fascinating. And then there's another, was another, the uh, other volcano that uh, went off in the 1800s, I think that was the same, I think that was Etna, I think. I don't remember, but that was, it blanketed all of Europe in the the ash and the smoke, and that is what caused the gloomy atmosphere in Switzerland that um, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> so it even affects us in fiction. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That it was like that climate change, which again was natural caused by a volcano, um, that climate change actually had enveloped all of Europe, a lot of uh, Morocco, I think it went all the way into Egypt. That's how big that cloud was. And it was sat there for months. Uh, it yeah, affected the, crops. When you have silica in the atmosphere like that, it actually cools, it actually cools the planet. Yeah. It dries it up a little bit too, but it, it, it has a cooling impact. It, it's silicon dioxide. And, like that. and that gloomy atmosphere, the, it was Percy Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley, and oh, what's this? Lord Byron, and Mary Shelley's sister. That were And they were teenagers. They were like 17. I think the oldest one was Byron, who was like 19 or something. They were all teenagers. And they were sitting around, like teenagers do, on a dark and gloomy night, coming up with scary stories. And the only one who couldn't do it was Mary. So huh. she, she, she just... She showed them. She did. She gave them the best book in the world. Yeah, I mean, not only did she come up with a great story, but I think she effectively invented science fiction. Exactly. The entire genre. Yep. Yeah. Yep. She went to bed. She had a nightmare about the monster. And history was made. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, th that's why history is so cool when you're, when you're a writer. There's so much in it. <laughs> and, and there's so many threads that are intertwined that yep. you, don't really, you don't really consider. And you find out about these things, and you're like, oh, my Lord, I can't believe that those things were connected. But it, it, it is. It's all connected. Yeah. I mean, the Sarah led to the decline of the the Egypt that weakened it enough that the Greeks, Alexander the Greek, well first the Persians and the Greeks, so probably the Persians. Persians were able to invade and take over and then Alexander came and he invaded and took over. But that's because of the crop loss from the volcano. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, they weren't able to defend themselves. Right. They, the their whole thing. They were the breadbasket of the world, basically the known world. And uh, when they had crop loss, when they had six years of famine, that was 
there goes their money. There goes everything. People were rioting. Uh, there were lawsuits against the Pharaoh for non-payment, literally. <laughs> uh, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, that, and it's scary too because it can happen to, you know, to to anyone. Because the other thing is like you know, climate change. It's not it's not all negative, right? There's there's positive and there's mm -hmm. negative. Yeah. And you know, in you know, in, in what scientists are projecting, the net beneficiaries are Canada and Russia. Right, because you know they'll have much more fertile soil, or you know more acres of fertile, fertile soil than they do today, and it kind of shifts the breadbasket of the world northward. So you know, again, it's it's terrible for you know places that are in flood zones because as the waters rise, you have more floods and things like that. So if you're in Bangladesh or uh, you know uh, Holland, for instance, you know Holland, you're just going to spend a lot more money keeping the water out. Um, whereas you know Bangladesh, you just you know have lots you know more flooding and and more loss. So it, it affects us here too. Look at what's going on in the Florida's coast. They decided because uh, I forgot the name of the plant, but one of the plants that they have along um, the what do you call it? The part that stretches out from Florida. That's part of Florida. Oh, the, the panhandle. The panhandle. There's plants around there that actually kept the water from coming in. It was a protection that Mother Nature gave them. They ripped it out and used uh, the area for to make more land so he can build more stuff. And they started flooding, right? And it's flooding, 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 flooding. They're having a very difficult time now. Uh, it's, we need to learn to work with nature. Stop trying to control it. Start trying to understand it and work with it. We'd be a lot happier world. Yep. I just hope the way that we choose to work with it, though, doesn't involve continuing to alter it. That's the problem. Right. Mother Nature's mad. <laughs> <laughs> we keep well, trying to change stuff. <laughs> Yeah, because it's, you know, nature's had, you know, hundreds of millions of years to evolve to a certain equilibrium. And, and you know, there's, you know, tons of different factors that interact with each other in, in multiple ways. And over time, you know, nature kind of, you know, seeks and finds that balance. Whereas when we tweak one little thing, we're not really considering the ripple effect that that'll have on the rest of the ecosystem. It's very complex ecosystem that's, you know, only after millions of years have, you know, has it settled into a, uh, into an equilibrium that allows allows the uh, you know, nature to function as it is in balance. And we're lucky. We are so lucky. Do you realize that the asteroid that hit just the right place that gave us our water and our carbon and our life-giving stuff that destroyed the dinosaurs, bad day for the dinosaurs, good day for us, bad day for the dinosaurs, <laughs> gave us life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly when we emerged, but uh, you know, I think that, was, you know, that asteroid was 65 million years ago. We would like not that. have and survived then, against the dinosaurs. Hmm. There's no way. <laughs> There was, there was, uh, we, would, we wouldn't have survived against that asteroid either. No, no. We wouldn't have. 
And a lot of the time, the um, a lot of the planet was different. I mean, it was very different when that asteroid hit. Uh, the the place places that have sand had water. Places that had water have had sand. Mountains weren't here. The world was different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very really interesting. I mean, I love how one is. I that I borrowed a line from an astronomer. He said it was a really bad day for the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably worse than bad, right? Yeah. Because they wouldn't have all died right away. Yeah, I'm sure that it was a terrible thing. Uh, I, I really, you know, there's a lot. They were veget- a lot of them were vegetarians, so I do feel sorry for them. <laughs> well, even the even the carnivores would have eventually died once you know, the vegetarians are going to die out. No, no food. It would just you know completely disrupted the you know the the you know the, the, the you know, ecological chain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's very interesting. Very, the and uh, the way the Earth came about and the Moon and how uh, the solar system was basically a roller derby until it settled down. The planets zooming into each other. Jupiter just throwing things out and throwing things in. And pre- even though it did that Jupiter was what our greatest protector. <laughs> yep. Thing with the asteroid belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's our protect. Those are our protection. That's why we have this nice, peaceful solar system that we're all sitting in. <laughs> For now. For now. <laughs> now. Until a new asteroid comes in and just goes crashing in at billions of miles an hour. <laughs> well, hopefully we, you know, get better at that. Hopefully all the stuff that SpaceX is doing will enable us to have a better early warning system and. And be able to, you know, figure out how how you can deflect something that's, um, you know, near collision. My brother calls it a nudge, that we just give it a nudge in the other direction. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's no, that's literally exactly what you would do. Even if you use nuclear weapons, like you don't, you know, there's no air in space, so it's the gamma radiation of the, you know, any nuclear de- detonation that you use to to nudge, you know, to nudge it one way or the other. Yep. But. But that's still relatively primitive. Like we have to really get better at it and get smarter at it uh, pretty fast. Yeah, because we don't know. We They said that there are things that are out there that they know are out there, but they can't see it, they can't project it, they can't figure out where it's coming from. Because there's a whole area, the solar system is so much bigger than we thought, and that there's a whole area outside of our solar system that's filled with asteroids and stuff that we can't see because there's bubbles around it. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Maybe bubbles, bubbles in what sense? Well, I don't know what they are. They they talked about it, but I'm not that smart. Um, but yeah. it looks like bubbles to me <laughs> when they were showing it in oh. the diagrams on the astronomy shows that I was watching. <laughs> there was like bubbles that kind of like, it's sort of like... Um, Sort of like the asteroid belt, it sort of protects us from anything from outer space. Yeah, it's probably like like something in the Oort cloud or. It that it's it that's what it is the Oort cloud. I couldn't think of the name. That's it. Okay. That's what protects us. Yeah, there's yeah there's a lot of stuff out there that that, uh, 
And I think it's the same thing with Jupiter. I think doesn't Jupiter absorb a lot of the radiation, like solar radiation out there? It does. It also is a big bully. Um, <laughs> did well, you yeah, know it's that? Kind of massive. It's just ma ma you know, it's huge, so it has a huge gravity well. Well, what it, they said was that in, during the early Earth, when um, after there was a big super Earth and big super Mars and stuff like that, and that um, Jupiter decided that it really wanted to go in there. So it, it actually went through and created the uh, asteroid belt because it smashed through some planets there and went through and 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 smashed up the big planets except for the core and sucked off all of the atmosphere and the only thing that saved us was Saturn and its big power and it sucked it with its um, its gravity pulled Jupiter back and oh. and that and that's why they basically go around each other <laughs> Because yeah, Saturn Jupiter's bigger and then Saturn's what they Yeah, know. but it's the rings and stuff. Yeah. And but Saturn saved us from Jupiter destroying everything. And remember this was before there were other the the other giant planets weren't there and the little rock planets were basically mm -hmm. beat up by the big bully. <laughs> 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 and then Earth and all the other planets uh, came from a little bit of a roller uh, derby between both planets until they, they went smashing into each other and created the planets we know. Yep, yep. And then now when a big bully has an asteroid come by, it kind of just throws it back into space. Away from us. Can't do it all the time because a lot of the asteroids and comets come by us. But the real big ones, a lot of time, gets caught into Jupiter's um, gravity and he just goes and knocks it out. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good at least. Yeah, we have our own little protector. But you wouldn't want to be an asteroid around him. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. No. So we're going to use this part um, to talk about your book. You have a new book coming out. What's your new book? So the book is Weird World War Three. Oh, interesting. And the, <laughs> and, and the premise behind the book is what if the U.S. and the Soviet Union had fought uh, World War Three? And the weird part comes in because each of the 19 stories in the book are based, you know, there, there's always a science fictional uh, fantasy or horror or some combination of all of the above element in, in each of these particular stories. Uh, and the way to think about it is, you know, kind of in Hollywood speak, it, think Tom Clancy meets Stephen King. Ooh. Those are kind of the, the stories that you'd say. And, and they all fit the theme, but there's a, a wider variety of stories and kinds of stories than, than you would think. So... You know, I'll give you an example. There's one story that takes place in the um, in the wake of an accidental nuclear accident in the U.S., where the U.S. nukes one of its own cities. And the the, the premise behind the story is it's an oral history. So you're you know interviewing different different people 
um, as to as to what happened and how how things went horribly wrong. And it turns out that there's uh, you know an aug- an augmented reality video game that gets people in you know national security positions and secretaries and stuff like that to do really tiny things that uh, you know are slightly wrong or slightly bad, but those tiny evil acts, when you sum them up over thousands of people, create a you know, huge evil. So it's it's almost like a combination, if you've ever read the, the Lottery by Shirley Jackson, which is really a story about the banality of evil, right? You know, sometimes just like evil acts are just done in, in very boring ways. But this is kind of something like, you know, if that's kind of about the banality of evil, this is about the incrementality of evil. Just tiny, small, white lies and, and little semi-harmless acts can lead to, to great evil. And it's, it's, you know, so that's kind of one sort of story that you'd see. Um, you'd also see, um, you know, stories about, you know, you mentioned earlier in this um, interview about how you had a background in archaeology and you talked a little bit about, you know, you know studying ancient uh, Sumeria, you know, or, you know, and, you know, or the ancient Sumerians. Uh, there's a story in here where there's, uh, you know, the Soviets figure out how to, to jump to a parallel universe, which is a dead world, but it has all the same locations that you would have on on Earth. You know, each point on Earth corresponds to a point in this place that he calls, that, that the author of the, the story, uh, Brian Trent, calls Arali, which, as you know, is the Sumerian underworld. Mm-hmm. And you know, by gaining this advantage, the Soviets are able to to appear with you know a large number of forces behind U.S. lines and create a ton of havoc. So that story takes place in the wake of of you know, the Soviets garnering that advantage. There's another um, story by John Langan, who's a Bram Stoker award-winning author, where the cosmonauts um, and you know astronauts are on the surface of the moon and the, and the cosmonauts are getting attacked by, you know, some unknown alien presence. And the astronauts have to decide, should we, you know, bind together together to save humanity or should we let, you know, the enemy of our enemy become our friend, um, even though it's an alien species. And, you know, it, it, during that point, they're looking down on Earth where there's been a limited nuclear exchange between uh, Soviet Union and the United States, and there's this whole fascinating interplay um, to make that, that that story come alive. It happens in 1986, and you know all this great stuff. So, you know, there are a ton of different stories for for any you know any audience to enjoy. And I and I really um, appreciate and love the creative ways that uh, a lot of the authors in the anthology came up with or approached the you know the story. And. Uh all right, do you have a story in it? I do not. I do not. So I edited the anthology, um, and I, you know, came up with the concept, and then, um, you know, brought the authors together to, uh, to create it. Uh, do you have um, uh, anything else? Uh, any of your stories coming out? Oh yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there, there's a. So I mentioned my story, a dramalek, which was in. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future, uh, Volume 33, mm-hmm. which you know came out in 2017. Um, that is about uh, again like a, an ancient Semitic demon um, 
and you know it, that that curses someone with the protagonist with a the ability to jump into other people's um, bodies and you know control them, but also has this this person do horrible things. And ultimately, the story is about you know, you know the the existence of free will, and the protagonist has to do something you know very terrible at the end. And he finds a way to thwart the demon, but in a way that uh, you know is you know still not necessarily it's not a happy ending. But he, he in an essence is able to win and kind of do the least evil in that story. I'm working on a story right now for another. Um, Bane anthology that that is you know going to come out either next year or the year after about the future of uh, military robotics and most of the author, authors if not all of them are going to be it's you know the editor is, is Stephen Lawson who's also a uh, you know military he's a current military officer and he is um, has a story in in my anthology uh, we're, we're World War Three but he's going to edit this one. And it has a, a lot of um, you know, veterans and uh, of both military and the intelligence community writing stories about the future of military robotics and artificial intelligence. So I have a story um, that I'm still you know still producing, but uh, you know it should appear in it, which which has um, you know looks into the, fu- into the future of our relationship with China and you know how that you know geopolitical competition. Um, you know, you know, should turn out, um, as well as you know, projects the future of robotics, um, in the military, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and also um, you know, genomics, and uh, you know, looking looking at the future of CRISPR technology. So uh, you know, that, that's that's another you know piece that that I'm working on. Um, I, I have another story that's appearing in a publication called. Um, you know, mythic, and it's it's a story about a uh, you know a strange figure that appears in a town in Massachusetts. Um, it's 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 kind of a, a take on the um, the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamlet, right? It only happens in the United States, and it's you know I think it's, you know a little darker. But uh, you know those are kind of the you know the things that I'm either working on or coming out in the near term. Cool. Now, your uh, winner of the Writers of the Future Award, uh, what year was that again? That was uh, 2017. How do you feel about what's going on um, with the virtual thing, with the virtual classes and stuff like that, that we had to do this year because of 2020? Well, I think they're going great. I think anybody can, um, uh, you know, I think anybody can enroll in those virtual classes. You don't, you don't have to be a winner. So I, I highly encourage folks to do that in order to get better at their craft um, and also you know entering the contest is a no-brainer I mean it it, it really helped me um, you know feel better about my writing and 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 know that I was writing at a professional level and and and, and it's all you know, it's free to enter and you know the 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 prize is 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 definitely there's nothing like it and and it's anonymous so you know, it's you really know that you that you won because uh, you know you had professional science fiction writers and and uh, editors you know read through thousands of of entries and um, 
you know, you really, you really get a chance to, to shine. And like I said, I highly recommend it. Um, we're coming to the end. Uh, for people who'd like to say hi, do you have a website and what social media are you on? Sure. So you can check out my website at seanpatrickhazlett.com. Uh, um, and then, you know, I'm also on Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, and then to, to find Weird World War Three, you can find it on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, or, you know, anywhere books are sold. Great. Um, thanks for coming on, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much, Sherry, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank <laughs> you.